Let's open our Bibles now to James chapter 2. We are ready to begin chapter 2 of this this glorious uh, book that the Lord has given to us through our brother James. And you might be thinking, since I'm sick today, that that will result in a shorter sermon. You would be sadly misled if you were hoping for that. James chapter 2, and as you're able, let's stand together once more in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, not out of empty ritual. We do this to remind ourselves that the authority in this church belongs to the Lord and that that God has given to us his word. And so we we stand in honor of the word of the Lord and we stand to remind ourselves that we are in submission to the Lord and his word. Hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, or you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good this pure, this perfect gift that you have given to us, your people. We thank you that by your spirit working through your word, we have been brought from death to life, transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, our our blind eyes given sight and our deaf ears made to hear, our dead hearts of stone made to be living hearts of flesh. Pray this morning that you would accomplish all of your good purposes in and among us, By your spirit, through your word, I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. My early years in ministry, really the first decade in ministry as a young man was spent among the poor and the homeless and the disabled in South Bend. We were, we were part then of an association of churches uh, that, that is all across the country, really all around the world, but they're sort of known, and, and all the more so in the late 90s and early 2000s, were known for being cool, known for being modern, uh, trendy, uh, really attracted in, in general. If you walk into one of these churches, it's going to be middle class and, and upper middle class people who are all pretty similar. And so people would, would come to South Bend and they would see, oh, there's one of these churches here. And then they'd show up at our church on a Sunday morning and half the people were homeless. And we'd filled our cars with them every morning and brought them to church. Half the people were from group homes. They didn't look good. They didn't smell good most of the time. They had issues. There was a lot of mental illness, and it made people uncomfortable. 
And what people knew when they walked into that situation on a Sunday morning is, I could go to virtually any other church in this city and not be confronted with people who make me uncomfortable. And almost always, that's what they did. And often people would tell us exactly why they were going, oh, we really liked it. But boy, there's just a lot of homeless people here. It is very uncomfortable. On the opposite end of the spectrum, a couple of years ago, there was what was called the Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. A few of the ladies from this church were at this particular conference. And at that conference, they announced that they were going to be have a gathering for women of color only. There was some pushback to that. Isn't this segregation? You're going to have a, a gathering of people, but it's only for women of color and no white women allowed in the premises. How can you possibly be doing that gospel coalition? To which they responded, well, of course, uh, no, we don't want to do segregation. White women can come if you insist, but it's not for you. It's not for you. It's for the women of color. So you can come, but if you come, know your place. Stay quiet, sit in the back. Which was pretty pathetic. However, that still enraged a certain segment of the population, and they began to complain, no, we need this. We need this separate meeting. And so the Gospel Coalition issued another statement, actually, no, white ladies, you can't come. You're not invited to this. <clears throat> Women of color need a space of their own within this gathering without any white people present because you make them uncomfortable. Judgmentalism based on outside appearances is very common in our world and it is even common inside the church. People are judged all the time based on their dress or their looks or their ethnicity or their social status or their perceived intelligence or their perceived wealth or their education level. We could go on and on and on with all the externals with which we judge one another. And we all know this. We all know that it's true that those who are deemed more attractive or more successful or more wealthy or more intelligent or more elevated in social status, whatever the cultural trend of the time might be, that those people get opportunities that just not everybody gets. They're often given preferential treatment whether they deserve it or not. They're favored by the world. And even as they're favored by the world, sometimes those who are disfavored are actually treated with contempt. And we expect this in the world. Well, we expect the world to show partiality in this way because the world is full of sin. The world is in full-scale rebellion against the God who made all things and made all people. But God's people, who have all been redeemed by the same Lord, who have all been brought out of the same deplorable, helpless, sinful condition, who have all been brought into the same glorious, incomprehensible inheritance, well, those people ought not be guilty of favoritism. Among God's people, there should not even be a hint of this kind of sinful partiality. Sinful prejudice and discrimination produce great harm within the church. When, when partiality infects a church, 
In whatever form it takes, it always creates division. It creates conflict. It creates resentment. It creates dispute. That's true today. And it was true in the early church when James wrote this letter. And so in chapter 2, James, again, as he's getting so personal in our lives, he addresses this issue of partiality head on. In our passage today, James confronts the sin of partiality. And you can see from what we've read that he's concerned in one particular direction that he's going to address. Favoritism of the rich over the poor. Believers must not treat the poor with hateful scorn while treating the rich with fawning admiration. To do so, James is going to reveal to us is a wicked thing to do. So in order to keep us from this this evil, from this sin, from this wickedness, in verses 1 through 7, James is going to give us four reasons why we must not show partiality. The first thing he's going to say to us is this. We must not show partiality because it is incompatible with faith. Look at verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Again, James is, is so personal. He's so sort of in our face. He's constantly holding this mirror up in front of us and saying, see what you really look like in light of the truth. But, but he's not doing it by screaming at us. He's not doing it angrily. See how he begins his admonition here with this tender phrase, this tender phrase that James uses repeatedly in this letter. My brothers. That's a phrase James uses over and over again. It's often how James transitions from one topic to another topic is is by using this phrase, this loving phrase. But it's not just a device he's using in his writing It comes from the heart. He's addressing us as beloved siblings. Beloved siblings who need instruction. Beloved siblings who need to see who we really are in light of God's truth. But he's he's not addressing us as recalcitrant sinners who need to be punished and who need need an angry fist in our face. He's coming alongside of us as a loving brother to show us a better way. And his admonition here is plain. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. Do not be prejudiced. Don't don't be a a, a respecter of persons. Uh, Among Christ's people, there ought be no sinful discrimination. This Greek word here translated as partiality is an idiom that's brought over from the Hebrew. And it literally means to receive the face. To receive the face. It it means to form a a bias about someone based on their external appearance. James says, don't do that. Brothers, don't do that. Don't don't sinfully judge someone based on some external factor. Or some opinion you've got about them. And then treat them either better or worse because of it. To do either thing is sinful. He goes on to say that partiality is a sin. That's what he'll call it in verse 9. We'll get there next week. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
He'll go on in the next verse to say that those who commit this one sin are actually guilty of breaking the whole law of God. It's as if you've broken every law that God has by committing this one sin. That's how serious it is. So, so why is partiality a sin in the first place? What, what makes this kind of, of, of bias and favoritism sinful? Why is it bad? Well, well, the reason that partiality is a sin is because it doesn't reflect the character of God. That's not what God is like. God is impartial. He doesn't show favoritism based on external conditions. He, he doesn't treat you better or worse based on your appearance or your social status or your wealth or your education level or your intelligence or anything else that the world deems valuable. That is not how God treats you. The impartiality of God is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. It's often overlooked, but the, the Bible is consistent about this. In the Old Testament, we find passages like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, Moses declares to Israel, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widows. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. As we saw last week, God helps the weakest Among us, the most disenfranchised, God is for them, loves them, cares for them. In Job chapter 34, verse 17, when Elihu defended God against Job and his friends, he said this, will you condemn him, that is God, will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Verse 19 says, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. God is impartial because whatever you have, God gave it to you. So he's not impressed by what you have. He's not turned off by what you don't have. Whatever you have and whatever you don't have has come to you from the hand of God. He doesn't show favoritism to the ones you'd expect him to show favoritism to. In the New Testament, this theme of the impartiality of God is continued, especially as it pertains to salvation and judgment. Peter came to this realization that salvation was equally for the Gentiles, just as much as it was for the Jews when he heard about the vision that was given to Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So so those who come to saving faith No matter their ethnic background, no matter their nationality, those who come to saving faith are, Peter says, acceptable to him. Salvation is offered to whoever believes in Christ, regardless of background, regardless of ethnicity or skin tone or wealth or poverty or social status or any other human criteria that we could come up with. We also learn in the New Testament that that those who don't trust in Christ will be judged impartially as well. Romans chapter 2, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. God, God judges without partiality. 
One commentator says here, God treats people with absolute equality based simply and only on the internal condition of the soul and not on external circumstances. Or to put it in the words of scripture, as 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. So since God is impartial, his people ought to be impartial as well. Accordingly, we find in scripture that we must not show sinful favoritism. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17, as, as Israel is preparing to enter the promised land, Moses commands the leaders this way, you shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. So if there's a person or a tribe in Israel who appears mighty and strong and wealthy, don't let that play a role in how you judge the case. And if there's a person in Israel who appears small and frail and poor, don't let that influence how you judge the case. You shall not be partial in judgment. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7, the law requires that the Israelites not mistreat the poor among them. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against the poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Your eye look grudgingly on the poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. Be careful how you treat the less desirable among the nation, God says to Israel. The book of Proverbs counsels God's people in the way of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 23 says, partiality in judging is not good. Chapter 28, verse 21, to show partiality is not good. It's not wise. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord rebukes Israel's priests and says this, You've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The, the priests were treating some people better than they were treating other people. And this angered the Lord. So partiality is a sin and therefore it is incompatible with faith. In verse 1 here of James chapter 2, the main verb is this word hold. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In, in other words, you, you can't hold partiality and faith at the same time. You, you can't have both things. To believe in Christ means to become like Christ. And those who become like Christ will not treat people with sinful favoritism. It's foolish, isn't it? To show favoritism in the light of the one we believe in. James calls him here the Lord of glory. That's not a throwaway phrase. He's the Lord of glory. Christ is the Lord of glory. Christ alone deserves unreserved honor and glory 
above everyone and everything else. And so it is foolish for a believer to show partiality to those who possess mere human glory. Secondly, partiality is incompatible. Well, first, partiality is incompatible with faith. Now, secondly, we must not show partiality because it is unrighteous discrimination. Now, among first century believers, there were both rich and poor. We, we read of, of the rich in the New Testament, people like Lydia or Cornelius or the Ethiopian eunuch or the leading women of Thessalonica, or we could put Joseph of Arimathea in that category. However, for the most part, Christians in the first century were poor. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It was broadly true of the church. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Life was hard in the first century. And it was only made harder by the persecution that arose against the church of Christ. This group of largely poor people. This group of largely marginalized, unimpressive people. And then because of their commitment to Christ, persecution arose against them. And so this group of poor believers, not many who were wise, not many who were impressive, not many who were strong, they may have been tempted to pander to the rich. Whenever the rich visited their gatherings, they might have been tempted to make a big deal out of that in order to make life easier for them in some way. Imagine what it would mean to a small group of believers to have someone very wealthy in their midst. That temptation could lead to sinful temptation to prefer the wealthy over the poor. James has certainly observed this firsthand in Jerusalem. He illustrates the sinfulness of of partiality in verses 2 through 4. Look at those verses with me. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? This illustration here involves two people. The rich man the poor man. Both of these visit the gathering of believers for corporate worship, but they are received very differently. They receive very different treatment. Many commentators say this is not a made-up scenario here. James is talking about something that really happened. Not just once, but happened. Rich man comes into the church bedazzled with wealth. James says he's wearing a gold ring. Literally, the phrase here is, he's a gold-fingered man. That that phrase doesn't appear anywhere else. James James might have made it up to make his point all the more powerful. A gold-fingered man walks into the assembly. 
Just as they do in our day, rings in those days could signal the wealth of a person. Some Greeks wore rings on every single finger of their hands in order to display their wealth. There were even in those days businesses that were set up to rent rings to people who weren't very rich but wanted to appear very rich. And so they could rent rings for a time to wear them to some kind of event. Now, the Jews also wore rings. There's nothing wrong with rings. Rings are not sinful. They're just things. But very few in that culture could afford gold rings. So so this man, James wants us to know, he's very rich. He's a a gold-fingered man. One would only need to look at him, and, and you would instantly know he's rich. James says he wore fine clothing. The word fine, there's an adjective. It means splendid Having great beauty. In Luke chapter 23 verse 11, it describes the splendid clothing that Herod and the soldiers put on Jesus in order to mock him before his crucifixion. The the word can even refer to reflective, sparkling material that gleams white as, as the sun. That's how it's used in Acts chapter 10 verse 30. When one angel is described as wearing bright clothing. That word translated as bright there is the same word, fine, here in our passage. The point is, this man comes into the the gathering of the assembled church, and he is gleaming and glamorous in his wealth. Everything about him exudes wealth. His wealth is apparent, it, it seems. He even flaunts it. Perhaps so that people will honor him. Perhaps he's accustomed to people just honoring him at every turn. And he enters into the assembly in such a way that he can't be missed. Guarantees bringing attention upon himself. On the other hand, James says there's a second man who's come. A poor man in shabby clothing also comes into the gathering. Poor here denotes a man who is destitute. He has nothing to offer anyone. He is thoroughly unimpressive. In fact, implied in this word poor is that this is a man who lives in a continual state of poverty. He's in shabby, filthy clothing. One would only need to look at him to know that he was poor. Shabby clothing, it's filthy. It means soiled, unclean, defiled. He comes in grimy and probably smelly. Well, James has painted this picture for us of one man that we would naturally be drawn to and one man that we would naturally be repelled by. And in painting this picture, James has painted us into a corner. This is one of those moments. (coughs) This is one of those moments where James holds the mirror of God's truth in front of us and says, see what you look like. If these two men came into our service, who would you pay attention to? Who would you be more eager to greet? Who would you favor? Who would you prefer? Who would you be more likely to invite over to your house for lunch? And you know what? You know the answer. You know what the answer is. James knows what the answer is. We all know what the answer is. That's why James goes on to say this in verse 3. If you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourself, become judges with evil thoughts? You size these two men up as they enter, and you determine on in your heart to look with one with favor over the other based on their external appearances. Then, James says, you have done something that is evil. A great evil. The, the temptation would be to go out of your way to accommodate the rich man, to honor him the best seat, to honor him the, the place of honor. James says, you sit here in a good place. That word you is emphatic. It, we, we want to single you out. We want to impress you. At the same time, the temptation would be to barely acknowledge or perhaps avoid the poor man, to, to relegate him to a place of dishonor. You stand over there or sit down at my feet. Know your place. If you're going to be here, know your place. You don't deserve to be with the rest of us. If you're going to stay, be over there, away from us. Or at least sit at our feet. That's where the servants sit. If you're going to stay, know your place. You're not our equal, so don't act like our equal. Oh, we wouldn't say that. James says we say it by saying, you stand over there. Sit at our feet. James says that such an attitude reveals sinful distinctions. You've separated these two men based on nothing more than external appearances. You've chosen to honor the one and demean the other. Not based on character, not based on godliness, not based on faithfulness, not based on anything at all that you know about them except the appearance of wealth. The appearance of having it all together. To both men, you should have been a gracious host. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. But in this instance, neither the poor man nor the rich man were welcomed for the glory of God, but instead for the glory of man. That's how they're treated. Rather than acting as a host, you've become, James says, judges with evil thoughts. You haven't treated the poor man with love. You've you've disdained a man who may be your brother in Christ. At the same time, you really haven't treated the rich man with love either. In in your greed and in your self-centeredness, in your worldliness, you have favored one who you think might benefit you. But you haven't treated him with love. You certainly haven't done it for the glory of God, James says. This behavior, this thinking, James says, it's like a wicked judge who looks to be bribed. It's like a wicked judge who denies the poor and wants to be esteemed by the rich. (coughs) Partiality, then, is unrighteous discrimination. And that discrimination, James is giving us an example here of the rich and the poor. It doesn't have to be the rich and the poor. It can, it can be sinful discrimination of all kinds. Again, per, perceived intelligence, education level, skin color, social status, whatever it is. Partiality is unrighteous discrimination that's got no place in the body of Christ. Third then, we must not show partiality because it is dishonoring to the one whom God has honored. 
Look at verse five with me. Listen, my brothers. There it is. There's that phrase again. He's coming alongside. He's a sibling. He loves you. That's why he's giving you this instruction. Even as he, as he holds this mirror up to your face, he's doing it in love. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. It's not a hypothetical. James has seen this play out over and over again. It's not an accident that he used this exact illustration. He's been in enough church gatherings to see if it's not the poor man, it's the Jew or the Gentile. It's something. There's discrimination going on against an image bearer of God and even worse, against a brother. James, James turns it now within the church, within the, within the brotherhood of the body of Christ. In this case, to be prejudiced against a poor man is to dishonor the one whom God has honored. If a poor man comes to saving faith, what does that mean? It's proof positive that God has chosen him. Even if no one else has chosen him. Even if no one in his whole life, in his entire earthly experience, would ever choose him, God has chosen him. God has made him rich in faith. God has made him an heir of the kingdom. The poor have no disadvantage with God when it comes to saving faith. They have no less spiritual blessing than the rich. When the poor come to saving faith, they become rich with the wealth that really matters. With the wealth that can never be taken away. With the, the wealth that moth and rust cannot destroy. They become rich in faith. And when we die, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. Do you have faith? Are you rich in faith? It's the only thing that lasts. The poor will in the future inherit far more than even the richest man on earth could possess. Christian, it's all yours. It's all yours with Christ. The whole world, everything, the new heavens, the new earth, the poverty of this life will be replaced with the riches of the kingdom to come. So James wants you to hear this, that the partiality is dishonoring the one whom God has honored. Again, it doesn't have to be wealth and poverty. Whatever that issue is, Fourth, we must not show partiality because it's foolish pandering. James closes with three illustrations, three questions to illustrate this truth, to illustrate the foolishness of pandering to the rich. And again, this could be any of the worldly systems that we're tempted to pander to. It says in the second half of verse six, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now again, as James attacks this issue of partiality head on, he's using these examples he's witnessed in the church of the wealthy and the poor. Could be anything. Could be any area of poverty or of, of partiality. 
But even as James does this, and he says these things about the wealthy, he knows that not every rich person has evil intent towards believers. That's not true. <coughs> he knows that not every wealthy person is a blasphemer. But, but in order to show the irrationality of favoritism, he reminds the readers of how the rich commonly behave. And we could replace this with any worldly system that we're tempted to pander to. First question he says is this, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Oppress you is a very strong word. It's only used one other time in the New Testament and it refers to the oppressive evil of Satan. It means to exploit, to tyrannize with, with the intent to cause harm and hardship. It was a common thing in James's day for the rich to oppress the poor, especially with respect to mistreating their servants, withholding the wages that they're due. James is going to highlight that in chapter five. He says, he says this in chapter five, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived in luxury and self-indulgent. You've fatted your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James points to this common scenario. Rich landowners mistreating the people who work for them. Withholding wages that are due. Defrauding them, harming them, oppressing the poor. Some of whom apparently even died because of it, James says. That's James' first question to show us how insane it is to pander to these people. Second question is this, are not the rich the ones who drag you into court? Again, in these days, the wealthy used the court system to overcome the poor. The poor couldn't defend themselves, especially when judges were in the pockets of the rich man. These Christians understood that. They, they knew that, that they were being unrighteously persecuted, and they knew that there was very little they could do about it. When you have no power, there's very little you can do about it. When the justice system is unjust. His third question is this. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? It's not that only the rich blaspheme. The poor blaspheme too. James is making a point here. This word blaspheme is to profane, to profane the Lord. And how they speak of God and how they speak of his people. They oppose God. They oppose God's people and they slander God and they slander his beloved people. They lie about Christ and his word. They belittle those who trust in God. The powerful condemn the people of God. Their mouths are full of blasphemy. And we see this all the time. We see this all the time in the world around us. Think of how Christians fawn over every politician or celebrity who dares wink the eye towards Christianity and make some claim that sounds Christian. 
We have the Democratic platform, which just endorses open evil, wickedness, rebellion against God, the holocaust of abortion, the the atrocities being done in the name of LGBTQ freedom. They hate the God of the Bible. They hate his people. I have no trouble saying, Christian, you ought not vote for them. You're not free to vote for them. It's a sin. Unfortunately, we look at our other options and they're not so glowing either. We have the presumptive candidate for president, former president Donald Trump. And we can, it's not hard to Google the pictures of him wrapping himself in the LGBT flag and prancing about on the stage. Perhaps you haven't forgotten that when he lost the last election, he blamed Christians. And he said, it's those Christians who are so consumed with ending abortion. It's their fault. And now, in one of his latest ads promoting him in his run for president, called God Made Trump, it speaks this line about him. He is the good shepherd who will never leave us or forsake us. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. They play us. You're being played. You're being used. Eventually, you're going to find out they were never for us in the first place. These are the people who oppress you. They stack the deck against you. They blaspheme your Lord. These are the people you want to pander to? These are the ones? These are the people you exalt? These are the people you want to be liked by? These are the people you want to honor? What foolishness? What foolishness? Partiality is foolish pandering. For these reasons... That James has shown us we must not show partiality as we hold faith in Christ. When we sinfully discriminate and are filled with prejudice, we fail to treat others as though they are equally made in the image of God, just like we are. We, we fail to treat others the way God treats the others. Why would we do that? Especially on the basis of something so fleeting as wealth or power. Or status. And we know that the world will mistreat us, but we must not mistreat each other in the church. We must not. We, we must not show sinful favoritism in the church. We must not allow such a sin to infect the church. And so let's ask together the Lord to keep us from this, from this harmful, hurtful, vile sin that is so prevalent in churches today and to cause us to walk in love, to cause us to walk in humility and grace and understanding and unity and hospitality with one another. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you, Lord, for the challenges it presents to us. We thank you, Lord, that that it confronts us. Lord, that as we examine our lives and our hearts in, in the light of your truth, we find that we fall short. 
But Lord, we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of his sinless life of obedience in our place and the finished work of his cross, sparing our guilt and our shame and our condemnation and the finished work of his resurrection, gloriously defeating Satan and sin and death. We rejoice in the sure promise of his return and the new heavens and the new earth where, where even, Lord, this sin that lingers in us will be put, put to an end. Lord, we rejoice in the glories of your gospel and your faithfulness to your people. We rejoice in your power to save. We do pray, Lord, that, that you would cause us to walk in obedience and humility, that you would cause us, Lord, to, to see you more clearly, that we might worship you more purely. Lord, that we, we might be so captivated with you, that we might be so, so taken that you, would, that you would, Lord, make us your own. That you would give us this union with Christ whereby we are hidden in him. That it would cause us to look at one another as those who have also been united to Christ. And to see how you have radically united us together. Rich and poor. All ethnicities and education levels and cultural backgrounds. You have made us one in Christ. And we will together with one voice worship our God for all eternity. And we are so amazed at your great salvation and your good work. We pray, God, that you would make us faithful ambassadors who, who with our lives and our mouths and our very hearts, Lord, proclaim the truth about our God and about his saving work in the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful in these dark days as we, even as we spoke, Lord, about the politics of our nation and the seeming corruption on all fronts, we do pray that, that righteousness would prevail. We pray that righteous laws would be passed. We pray that abortion would be ended. We pray that these, these uh, crimes against children that are done in the name of inclusivity and, and uh, gender ideologies, that they, would be, that they would be stopped and banned and outlawed. And Lord, we pray that, that righteous leadership would um, would. Uh, lead our country. In all of this, Lord, we know that, that it is Christ Jesus who rules over all things. This world belongs to our God. And so we rest in that. We find our hope and our comfort in that. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us in this earth. As your name is made great throughout this community and throughout this whole world. In Jesus' name, amen.